was all of those different pop culture references. So Amy Sherman Palladino, the creator of the show, clearly has seen everything. Like she just references Dark Shadows, you know, a 60s soap opera about vampires and I Love Lucy and, you know, weird TV movies that nobody remembers except for her. And this is the creator of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and you can see how she went from Gilmore to Maisel. This is all to say that I sort of developed my love for pop culture based on Gilmore Girls. It was like a key to the world of American pop culture. I would watch the shows that Lorelai and Rory watched. I would watch the movies that they talked about. I'd watch like Grey Gardens and read the books on Rory's reading list. And that very much shaped who I was as like a pop culture writer and as someone who cares very much about the impact of pop culture on people's lives. Absolutely. Actually, when my first daughter was born, that was part of our routine when I was on maternity leave is I would take her on a walk in the stroller and we would come home and Gilmore Girls would be on three in the afternoon. And I would sit down and watch it while taking care of her. But it was interesting because I'd also watched it when I was younger and then to kind of like now be a mom and holding my baby. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. Now I'm seeing this show through a whole different lens. It's that definite, that witty writing that is so endearing to the, her work in those shows. Yeah, and something really funny happened as I sort of became a fandom expert, which is that I connected with a lot of cast members and and people on the crew in the show and writers and, and, you know, the costume designers and everything. And there's this whole community of people who worked on Gilmore Girls who are really passionate about it. I can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about fandom, but I've attended an unofficial Gilmore Girls fan festival that brings all of those people together. And I actually worked with one of the cast members on a program where we watched Gilmore Girls together every night with different cast members and writers and, and crew members. And we talked about their experience on the show and our experience as fans. That was a meaningful part of my pandemic experience. You know, speaking of the pandemic, I think one of the things that once again, we were all reminded is how important artwork is. And that could be, you know, whether it's a book or whether it's songs or film or, you know, however we consume all these different works. And I would love to just hear your thoughts about why you think storytelling is so important. And I know, obviously, it's been with us for thousands of years, but just in today's age, why storytelling is such a key thing for us all to be participating in. So a couple of years ago, I started reading the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Do you know that one? I've heard of it, yes. Very big airport book. I think that they pretty much only sell it at Hudson News, right? I started reading this book, and in one of the first chapters, the author says something along the lines of storytelling is what makes us human. And he talks about the link between storytelling and evolution. And that unlocked something important for me. So I started thinking about, well, if stories are the key to evolution, then where does fandom sit in all of this, right? You know, I think what's special about stories is that they help us impart lessons from generation to generation. And that hasn't really changed that much over the course of human history. You find that stories are very specific to cultures, but they can also be universal. So there's something called the ATU index, which helps folklore studies professors catalog different tropes and motifs. It's almost like the site TV tropes where there's a Cinderella in basically every culture, right? But 
that story is different depending on the different cultural mores and values of, of those people. So I think that we need stories in order to evolve and they're baked into us as a species. But I think that today stories are a little bit different because they're so scalable, right? So stories like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars are scaled to the point that everyone can see them. You can see them in China, you can see them in Sweden, you can see them in the U.S., but they're also owned by major media companies, which makes a difference. I think that the way that people engage with stories hasn't changed that much, but the ownership of them has changed. I often talk about Star Wars, Harry Potter, Marvel, all of these stories as the modern mythos. There, yeah, you have the hero's journey. You keep yeah. Over over again. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the hero's journey because there's this article, I'll have to send you the link, that essentially is like the hero's journey is no longer serving us. Uh, because, and the thesis of that is just that it's a very individualistic idea of humanity, and it's very focused on the kinds of stories that we see in the Western world, whereas in, in other cultures you might see more of a collectivist ideology or more, you know, the stories that we see in the hero's journey don't necessarily reflect the values that will help us survive as a species. When did you first realize there is power in fandom and the communities that it builds? So I am the co-president of the board of directors, it's a mouthful, at Fandom Forward, which used to be called the Harry Potter Alliance for about I think 17 years out of, out of um, almost 20 years that we've been around. We very recently rebranded. Fandom Forward is a 501c3 nonprofit that turns fans into heroes through a tactic called fan activism. For me, tapping into fan activism, getting involved with then the Harry Potter Alliance was that turning point for me. I joined the organization in, I think, 2010, 2011, I was a member of many online fan communities. There's this community called Nerdfighteria, which is essentially online nerds fighting world suck and fighting to increase world awesome. And it was essentially created by the novelist John Green and his brother Hank Green, who also now is a very successful novelist, but you know, they've created a number of media properties. They created VidCon, which is like the YouTube convention, SciShow and Crash Course, which has been indispensable for science educators around the world. A lot of students use it to help them graduate from high school. And essentially, there was this whole community of really geeky, passionate people engaged in fandom that were doing fan activism. And, and that, to me, was really, I sort of saw that as an opportunity to engage with that community, but then also move beyond that and see what are the possibilities for this tactic? How can this work that the Harry Potter Alliance is doing with Harry Potter fans? How does that apply to other fandoms? So th that was a huge turning point for me. So fandom itself is not new, as we've kind of already mentioned, but the internet has definitely transformed how people engage with it, then both good and bad. What trends do you see emerging now as we're kind of entering this next generation with all these different ways to build communities online and talk with people and engage with each other? I think fan activism itself is one of those trends. So, you know, I don't think I really explained that. 
fan activism is essentially a way for fans to draw parallels between the stories that they love, like Marvel, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever it is, and the problems that they see in the real world, like climate change and reproductive justice and education reform and and you name it, there's pretty much some sort of storytelling parallel that fans can connect to and create a fan activist campaign around. More broadly, I would say that fan creativity is starting to scale in such a way that the line between creator and consumer is blurred. I think fans have always been creative. There's been a long history of fans expressing their opinions, creating fan art, writing fan fiction. A lot of fan academics cite Sherlock Holmes as one of the earliest modern examples of fandom. And that was around the turn of the century. I mean, Sherlock Holmes fans were so mad that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes that they started a letter writing campaign. And then that's why Sherlock Holmes was brought back to life. Reluctantly, I might add, by the author. So fandom has existed for at least 100 years. But you're starting to see this rise in experiential consumption of stories, particularly around social media and the tools that we now have for communicating with people around the world. We've started to see more and more things like fan festivals. As I mentioned, there's a a very rigorous community of Gilmore Girls fans that host a fan festival together. I believe there was a Lord of the Rings summer camp that was created by fans that unfortunately was shut down by, I don't know if it was the Tolkien estate, but essentially it was shut down by the powers that be. And and you see fans engaging and creating communities that allow them to create fan art and, and talk about these stories together. But you also see these major media corporations trying to engage in one way or another. I know there was a very expensive Star Wars hotel that was essentially like a Star Wars LARP, so live action role play where you could go and and participate and live the Star Wars experience. That just shut down, by the way. So that that to me kind of says a little bit about how these corporations interpret what fans want versus what the fans are actually doing. But I'd say the rise in experiential content has been a really important trend in the last five to 10 years. Speaking of the Star Wars hotel shutdown, because I read about that as well, why do you think corporations lose their way when it comes to fans? Because we're kind of seeing this over and over again. It's almost like they forget the people who love the work to begin with and those who genuinely care about it, like they're the most passionate about it. And then they create things that are not actually speaking to that fandom at all. And, and then it kind of loses its way, and then you kind of see a disaster. There's been other examples. Thinking of the Dungeons & Dragons situation where they were trying to actually take away the creation of people making stories and writing their own pieces for the game and trying to say, oh, actually, let us make money off of that, and you don't get to create that anymore. And the fandom basically revolted. So it's funny you ask this. I spoke with Abigail Disney on my podcast. That was the last episode as of this recording on Fandom Made Me. And and Abby is the grandniece of Walt Disney and granddaughter of Roy Disney, who were the founders of the Walt Disney Company. And she spoke to this idea that so much of fandom is just vibes. And when you go to business school, you're not learning how to measure the vibes. And it's a funny way of putting it, but I think that she kind of tapped into something really important. Essentially, 
fandom is about people creating lore together in a community, and it's very much rooted in relationships and tradition and what almost feels like inside jokes. Even though it's out in the public for everyone to see, these are cultural traditions and ways that people engage with media through relationships that they're building. And I think that the managerial, the Harvard MBA grads who are running these companies just don't tap into that. They're not paying attention. If it can't be measured on a balance sheet or, you know, in a focus group or a test screening, they're not paying attention. Or if they are, everything gets watered down through, you know, legal approvals. There was this whole thing about how Heinz Ketchup posted a Barbie meme, but it was like a month too late and everyone's calling them out on that. And it's just to say, you know, when you get, when you go through legal, it just takes too long to get the content out that's going to connect with people. So I think it's really easy for corporations to lose their way with fans. And, and Abby also talked about this idea that, you know, these corporations don't necessarily like the fans to begin with. They kind of make fun of them in many ways and they don't appreciate what these fans are creating and, and how they engage with the content. Speaking of engaging with content, for the publication, The Conversationalist, you wrote an article that dives into your love of Harry Potter and the di- disappointment you've had with its creator, J.K. Rowling. And, you know, I personally have the same feelings. I'm a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, loved that show from the beginning, watched every single season and now have very mixed feelings about it now that uh, its creator, Joss Whedon, has unfortunately come out to not be quite what he showed himself to be. I, I totally get that, by the way. I, I was a fan of the, the Joss Whedon verse. Um, I was a huge fan of Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog when I was growing up. That was what we did after prom instead of having sex or anything interesting. We, my friends went back to my best friend's house and, and we watched Dr. Horrible for the millionth time. And, and that was a fun prom night for us. And um, just for our listeners who don't know, um, Joss Whedon basically uh, was very much um, sold himself as a feminist and women's rights and, you know, gender balance and all these different things. And then later on, it came, turned out there was rampant sexual harassment on his sets, amongst other things. And the internet can tell you all so much more, but it's complete opposite of what the portrayal was. And then going back and looking at the work, you feel all of a sudden just different about it. And I even grapple now with, do I share Buffy with my girls or do I wait till they're a little older? So I kind of can't explain my feelings now about the work. But back to you, as you mentioned, you actually changed the name of Fandom Forward from the Harry Potter group because of J.K. Rowling's season. I would just love to hear your thoughts about how fans can engage with a work despite the creator making choices that they no longer agree with, and how can we turn that engagement to a positive? Look, I'll say that the Harry Potter Alliance and now Fandom Forward, that community does everything by committee and, and, you know, in community with other people. So the choice to rebrand and change the name of the organization came through a lot of action. And we took a survey with the whole community. We surveyed the whole community and some people still wanted to do Harry Potter fan activism. Some people wanted nothing to do with it. I will say that a lot of our volunteers are queer and or trans. And so 
J.K. Rowling's transphobia really hit them very hard. A previous communications director, Jackson Bird, is a trans man and has written for the New York Times and a number of outlets about how Harry Potter helped him come out as trans, and that's why this is so devastating. The very content that helped us figure out who we are is coming from a person who's trying to hurt us, and it's really, really a shame. In terms of where Fandom Forward is now, I mean, we're not engaging with Harry Potter content so much. I think individuals are are left to decide what makes the most sense to them. But I will say that we're part of a consortium of fans who created a petition called HP Fans Against Transphobia. Many Harry Potter fan influencers have participated in that and they've found a way to talk about Harry Potter through the lens of this issue. I've wrote about that in that conversationalist piece. I think my favorite thing that was created out of all of this was um, from a group called Hashtag Ruthless. They were previously called the Gailey Prophet and they created essentially, it's called a guide to firing JK Rowling. And I'll send you a link to that. But it's basically this set of resources for how to engage with Harry Potter as a Harry Potter fan. I do think it's a very difficult question. I think at first, personally, I can only speak for myself to this point, I was okay with engaging with Harry Potter in the sense that I wasn't putting money in J.K. Rowling's pockets. I would engage with the DVDs I already had and the books I already had. And of course, with all of the fan creators that I know who are supporting trans rights, there are things that you can do. Fandom Forward actually sells a a prefect badge. If you you know anything about Harry Potter, it's the RAs of the Harry Potter world. And as a former college RA, I've really identified with that. So they had a prefect badge that had the trans flag on it and it says perfect. So to me, that is a very political Harry Potter fan statement that you can make that I really love. But I don't know. I think personally, I've soured on, on Harry Potter quite a bit and other stories have really filled that gap for me. I've become a Lord of the Rings head. That's not really what the fandom is called, but I've become a really big fan of Lord of the Rings in, you know, since I I kind of moved away from Harry Potter and I've joined other fandoms and I've I've just focused my attention elsewhere and it's been so much more productive, especially as JK Rowling has it has gone further and further down that rabbit hole because you can tell She's not letting go of this. And in fact, the more people challenge her on it, the more she engages in a harmful way. The other thing I'll say about this is that John Green, who I mentioned is a founder of Nerdfighteria, once said that books belong to their readers. And so whether or not you choose to engage with a fandom that you've loved before, I think that there are ways to avoid putting money in in the pockets of harmful creators and ideally continuing to to love the things that you love in such a way that you are helping marginalized communities. I think too with having the internet, you know, for all of its grievances, but also its pluses is that you can now find so many other things, as you said, to kind of fill that void. There are so many creators and there's all so many people making wonderful work that Sure, it may not be as mainstream as some of these that we mentioned, but they are out there and you can find things to engage with. So easier than ever before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
I'm not really a Harry Potter fan anymore, but there are so many other amazing books and films and shows that connect me to other people in the same way. And I'm just enjoying that. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. This episode of the Girls That Create podcast is brought to you by the Girls That Create website, where we provide parenting resources for raising creative girls, while also encouraging greater female representation across the arts. Visit us at www.girlsthatcreate.com, where you'll find articles by some of our podcast guests, including Dr. Michelle Borba, Jessica Leahy, Renee Trudeau, and many more. You can also sign up for the Girls That Create newsletter at www.girlsthatcreate.com slash newsletter. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Don't let the name fool you. Stadiumbags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice, because safety, it's in the bag. And we're back with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Sabrina Carton. Why should parents encourage and engage when their kids find a fandom they're passionate about? And what should they consider when thinking about how their kids are interacting with those communities? Uh, When kids become, you know, especially that tween years, you really start seeing them branch off and become their own person. And I know from personal experience, sometimes I'm kind of like, okay, what is this word? What is, what is all this? And asking for explanation. But I find that engagement does bring me closer to my daughter, which is what we're all looking for, especially in this age when they kind of start pulling away. So my caveat here is that I am not a parent yet, but I've worked with a lot of parenting experts and parents, and I've learned a lot from them. I can only really speak as a former child in that I was always happiest when my parents and the adults in my life really engaged with and cared about the stories that I loved. Harry Potter being the biggest example that is no longer really an example for me, I would love going to Harry Potter movies and book premieres with my grandmother or my mom and dad. I really do think that it's more than just a bonding opportunity. I think that it allows you to better understand the communities that your children are in. And it also allows you to connect lessons that you want to teach them to the stories that they're engaging in. I think that children 
maybe this is just because I'm not a parent, so I don't know right now, but I just assume that they're much more open to learning when you're connecting those lessons that you want to teach them to the stories that they care about. I'll give you an example. So there's an organization in New York City where I live called Good Shepherd Services, and they provide after school and summer care for kids. And their framing is all about storytelling. So they have a theme every summer for their for their summer program. Last year it was the Avengers. This year it's Tiny Toons. It's great. And I toured their facility recently and I saw that there was so much art that the kids had created from different pop culture references. So like Naruto and Avatar the Last Airbender. And you can see that these kids really connect to those forms of pop culture, movies, television, books. These are the stories that help kids make sense of the world. And I think it's really valuable for parents to be tapped into all of that. And it's like, look, you don't have to watch every episode of Bluey to know what it is that your kids like about it. And it doesn't have to be scary for parents to know that their kids are out there on the internet engaging with people who are like-minded. I think it's just really an opportunity to, to connect over what the story means and also, you know, what communities that they're in. It, it kind of helps you monitor what they're doing without really feeling like you're policing them, essentially. Um, Not to scare the parents who are listening out there, but I think that there are a lot of positive and negative examples of fandom being used to shape children in some way. There are white supremacist organizers, activists who are engaging, you know, young white men and boys on on white supremacist ideology in video gaming communities. It's, it's really troubling. There are, I think the ADL did, the Anti-Defamation League did some research on this. And it's a growing concern for a lot of parents who, you know, will see their kids start talking about Nazi ideology and they don't know where it comes from. It's really important for, for parents to be engaged and, and know what stories kids are, are consuming. And to understand that the internet is easily accessible and there is no way to stop it. You will not block yeah. the internet. <laughs> yeah, there's not really a way of stopping it, but you can engage with it and engage with it in such a way that it's not a chore. There's a great writer who covers this, Dr. Jordan Shapiro, so his books are largely about working with children around these issues. I believe his book, The New Childhood, is about that idea like of engaging in a world where we are global citizens and we're more connected than ever. And technology doesn't have to be this scary thing that parents shy away from. It's really an opportunity to learn and grow with our children around these new communities. Earlier, you mentioned your podcast, Fandom Made Me. I would just love to hear a little bit more about that and what the podcast covers and what type of guests you have on. Yeah, so Fandom Made Me is a podcast where I interview activists, leaders, and writers, occasionally a celebrity or two, which is really fun, about the pop culture that shaped them and, and the fandoms that they're a part of. And it's hosted through Fandom Forward. It's really like a fundraising stream for Fandom Forward and an opportunity for me to use these amazing connections that I've made to engage, you know, industry leaders and activists and people who are doing amazing things, I guess I would say, in the mainstream 
on the topic of fan activism. Like I got to explain to my friend and colleague, Cindy Levy, who was the editor of Glamour magazine for, I think, 17 years, what fan activism was on the podcast. And I have had amazing guests on beyond that too. I had Mara Wilson, who was Matilda in, in the movie Matilda. I had George Motes, who is America's leading expert on the hamburger. He's like the, the hamburger historian. I recently had Abigail Disney on, as I, as I said. I had uh, Alan Jenkins and Gon Galan, who Alan Jenkins is a professor at Harvard Law School and I believe one of the founders of the Opportunity Agenda. And Alan and Gon wrote this amazing comic series called One Six, which was, you know, a speculative graphic novel series about, you know, what would have happened if January 6th had been successful for the insurrectionists. So we have a number of really amazing guests. We had Dahlia Lithwick, who's a leading expert on Supreme Court constitutional law, talking about the Muppets and how the Muppets shape the way that she you know, views the world and, and views her work and is essentially a, a communicator of these really dense legal ideas and, and legal history. So yeah, I mean, this podcast I started this podcast in January of 2023. It's now August. We're coming up on the first season finale with Henry Jenkins, who was, I call him the father of fan studies. And when he, when I said that, he said, well, there are so many mothers of fan studies. And actually, that's a really patriarchal idea. And as a feminist, I just found that so ironic that that, that could be an oversight for me. But yeah, he's one of the fathers of fan studies in one sense. And we've just had a really amazing season. I think there are going to be 15 episodes in total for the first season. And I'm going to take a little bit of a summer break. And when we come back, it's just going to be more of of the same, more amazing industry leaders in media, technology, business, activists, writers, you know, people from all corners, you know, of sort of the progressive world talking about the pop culture that they love. That sounds fantastic. You know, one thing I wanted to touch with you about is this is obviously taped summer 2023. So we are in the midst of Barbie and Oppenheimer. And I've seen both. And one thing I think is really interesting about both movies is how they pull different fandoms. This is one of the reasons I think they've both been wildly successful, because they speak to very different fandoms. So say Barbie speaks to obviously the Barbie fandom, which has always been very strong. But then also people who love Gerda Gerwig's movies, her fans come out for it. And then also just ones who people who are looking for that summer fun movie, in a sense. Although it's, as the surprise, I'm sure many people have heard by now, there's a lot of depth to Barbie that, you know, caught a lot of people by surprise, but people have actually appreciated it. And the flip of that also being with Oppenheimer, you have the World War II enthusiasts. You have the science enthusiasts, you have the Christopher Nolan enthusiasts, which I just think it's interesting when projects are able to tap into all these different fandoms and they can all come together to experience a piece of work. I saw Barbie last week and then I saw Oppenheimer last night, actually. Barbie, I saw with my mom and my husband. So my mom was here for my 30th birthday, and that was really fun. I'm so glad that I saw it with my mom because I think that that's the kind of movie, you you know, if you have a relationship with your mom, and I think that that's a great film to see with your mom. If you have a really good relationship with your mom, um, I felt very emotional about it, and it made me appreciate 
the sacrifices that she's made and just what a wonderful film to see. Oppenheimer, I actually saw by myself. Um, sometimes I will take myself out to see a movie. My husband was just not, he's like, I can't see this movie right now. It's, it's, it's a lot emotionally, but, but I was like, great, I'll go see it. And I was so overwhelmed that I just, I, I'm in New York. I, I, you know, saw the film and then I had dinner and I cycled, I like rented a bicycle and I cycled all the way around Central Park because I needed to feel alive. I needed to feel human and not like the world was ending. So that was kind of a very weird existentialist experience that I had around Oppenheimer. Yeah, I, well, I'm laughing because I actually saw Oppenheimer last night too. <laughs> we so. could spend an entire podcast talking about that. We could, I mean, it we could. A it's, it's, a, it's a definite one. But again, like I said, I think I'm intrigued by, I just see all these different folks with different reasons to be at the movies, but they are both embracing them. So again, I think there's something to be said as well about, because obviously they're both backed by major studios, but the filmmakers were given the freedom to create the work they wanted to. Yeah. And this is the chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say that Barbenheimer to me is something that only could have come out of fandom. And I think that the studios will spend years trying to recreate double feature and they're already really trying to push that with other films. But I think that that came out of fan creativity. It was essentially a meme that impacted the studio system in such a way that, that they're going to be studying that for years and they're just not going to get it because they can't measure vibes. I will tell you as someone who is a digital strategist and a fan and someone who studies fandom, I saw Barbenheimer happening six months ago. I saw Barbenheimer happening from the moment that they announced that both films were coming out on the same day. You, you started to see it on Twitter and you started seeing fans creating posters and making art and, and creating their own interpretation. They really, those films come together in such an interesting way too, because you think they're completely different, but they're really about life and death. To me, Barbie is what are we living for? And Oppenheimer is what are we dying for? Maybe that's too dark for this podcast, but oh, I that's, think that's so. just my thought on it. <laughs> Everyone knows which one's darker and which one's lighter. Yeah. <laughs> but, they, but, but they, but, you know, again, they both have depth. One thing I wanted to also ask you about, because you also have, you did study political science, I believe, or government. Yes. And I would just love to hear your thoughts. Just that whole idea of politicians having a fandom, which isn't necessarily new, but again, I feel the internet definitely transformed it in ways that we've gone beyond, um, you know, the fireside chats that used to be on the radio, and now it's this mm. whole different beast of a fandom. Yeah, right before the pandemic, I wrote sort of an academic piece. It was like a symposium piece for the Journal of Transformative Works and Culture, which is the major, like, fan studies academic research journal online and that piece was called the fandomization of political figures so it was about this very topic and my case studies were I'm trying to remember what they all were but the two I remember were Ruth Bader Ginsburg and this idea I mean she wasn't a politician but she was you know central to our, our political history and she had all of these candles and tote bags and t-shirts with her face on them. She, you know, had been a member of the Supreme Court. She'd been a Supreme Court justice for 
you know, know, since I think I was born, I think since 1993, but in the last few years of her life, she was notorious RBG. She was suddenly this like meme and this political figure in some sense that, you know, people really engaged with those tote bags and they bought things. And then, you know, if they would wear a t-shirt that had her face on it and that said something about them politically. And that, that happens a lot. You're seeing that happening with Zelensky, right? The Ukrainian president um, during the war in, in Ukraine. Jane Jacobs was my other example. So she was essentially a writer and an advocate for public spaces and, and you know, urbanist ideas. And she fought Robert Moses. If you know anything about New York City history, Robert Moses wanted to put a highway through Washington Square Park. And again, going back to Amy Sherman Palladino and and Gilmore Girls and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Jane Jacobs was a character in in Maisel. You see Mrs. Maisel kind of accidentally, like Forrest Gump, being a part of history and and engaging with Jane Jacobs, protesting with the group of mothers and, and women who were protesting the Robert Moses Highway Project. And so Jane Jacobs is almost like a mascot for this group on Facebook called New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Oriented Teens, also known as NumTots. There have been a lot of articles and and there's a lot of coverage about this idea that, you know, there's this group of like-minded young people engaging in urbanism, advocating for walkable cities and public transportation and you know, bike-friendly cities and, you know, getting jobs and internships through this group and resource sharing. And Jane Jacobs and her work, her most famous book was called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. You know, again, not a politician, but someone for whom these online fan groups, like, you know, essentially this person is a mascot and they, they kind of, that's like an entrance, that's an entryway for them to learn about things like urbanism or, in the case of RBG, constitutional law. So in this piece, I kind of explored this idea, can people actually learn and become better citizens, more informed citizens, because they are fans of a particular politician or a particular you know, public servant or public figure? I don't have an actual answer. I need like research. I need research to back it up. It was really just a short symposium piece. But I do think it's a very interesting trend that we're seeing happening in online communities. Absolutely. I think that's definitely worth exploring. What advice do you have for kids who are interested in starting a fandom community or a parent is talking with their kiddo and the child's expressing that they want to create something that's bringing people together for a particular cause? And how can parents help facilitate that? My advice is that it really just starts with you, you and a friend. You can never really know if starting a fandom community is going to be the thing that you do with your friends, you know, after school, and it's just a small group of people, or if it's going to blossom into something bigger. But I think that what's most important is, sounds a little cliche, but have fun and try your best, you know. I think it's about the impact you feel that you can make. I can send you a link. I wrote a piece for Remarcus Magazine about how to be a fan activist or how to engage in a, you know, how to start a fan activist campaign And much of it is, you know, connecting things like midnight movie parties and watch parties to a a social action that you want to take. So I always say that the things that fans know about organizing fan parties and watch parties and 
letter writing campaigns to studios and, and creating fan art, all of those tactics of engaging with fandom also are useful in organizing politically or organizing your community in some way. I think that parents could stand to, you know, go to fandomforward.org and, and learn what those resources are, whether it's political or not, you know, maybe it's organizing for something like reproductive rights, but maybe it's something as local and, you know, as like organizing a book drive or, you know, doing mutual aid or, or disaster relief. I think that, you know, those are all things that people can connect their fandom to the social issue. And it's all about brainstorming. Great minds think alike. Bring them all together. Yeah, for real. In my life, I've met a couple people who've made me feel like almost giddy, my knees shake. I almost can't even like focus. And the one that comes to mind is Christian Amafor, which I basically had to hold back where I didn't just go, I love you. Um, I think I get even more eloquent. I'm a big fan of, you know, thank you for all you do. I'm a big fan of your reporting. I do believe I was more eloquent than, but what I was thinking is, I love you. But for you, has there been someone with whom you've experienced a completely melted knees moment where you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm meeting this person, someone you've been a fan of for years? So before I get to my story, I just have to tell you, I also have met Christian Amanpour a couple of times. The first one, and this is how I know you're a Gilmore Girls fan, because Christian Amanpour, if you don't know, if you're not a Gilmore Girls fan, she's very central to the story. She was in the series finale. And she spoke, I went to Tufts University, and she spoke, she was she spoke on campus while I was there, and I was like the first student who showed up. And the sound people, I think, let me come into the sound check because I showed up several hours earlier than everyone else. And I got a picture with her and, and we talked and I got to interview her from my YouTube video blog way back when. And then I actually worked with her years and years later. I don't think she remembered that that was I was the same person from that time. But yeah, she's quite lovely. Go Christiane. She's great. So I actually work with quite a few celebrities. So I think as I've gotten a little bit older, I've never really starstruck anymore. I mean, I'm always delighted to meet celebrities, but in terms of a time that I completely melted, it was my wedding day. So this was about two years ago, two years and change. I got married in Brooklyn and we were near the Harbor, like Dumbo, which is where if you know, New York, there's a carousel there. And my husband and I took photos before the ceremony on the carousel, and we saw this man standing in line at the carousel with his family, and he was wearing a hat and, like, three shirts and a leather jacket. It was in July, and he must have been dying. I was dying in my wedding dress. And I look, and he's, like, really tall and looks familiar, and I'm like, is that Jeff Goldblum? I start yelling. I had barely gotten any sleep the night before. It was just like all a blur. And I think the words just came out of my mouth without me really thinking about it. And I don't think he looked that pleased that someone just yelled, hey, Jeff Goldblum. Like he didn't see who said it. But a friend of mine in the, in the bridal party said, you know, I got this. It's fine. And she went up to him and she said, hi, Mr. Goldblum, I'm so sorry, my friend in the wedding dress. And as soon as he knew that it was like a bride, he was so obliging and, 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 you know, he knew it wasn't like paparazzi or anything. And he was so nice and he gave me the thumbs up and that whole carousel ride, I was just, 
I had the realization that I was going to get off the carousel and take a picture with Jeff Goldblum and it would be the weirdest wedding day story ever. So we get off the carousel and first thing I do is apologize to him. I said, you know, I know that this was totally inappropriate. I shouldn't have shouted your name. I'm in a bit of a fugue state right now. I can't believe this is happening. And he just starts singing. He like serenades us like we're Jewish and my husband is wearing his kippah. And so he knows it's a Jewish wedding. And Jeff Goldblum starts singing Sunrise, Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. And I just, I was like, am I having an aneurysm? Like, this is not, there's no way that this is happening. So I think that for me was that, that celebrity, like fangirl moment. And the funniest thing was, was when we got back, when we got to the venue, we got the rabbi told everybody what happened and I, no one really believed it until she confirmed it and there were pictures, but it was just so funny. Right. It was like the funniest thing that could have happened. So that that's my story. <laughs> I love that you have that memory, though. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and I did, you know, I work in media, so I did tell a bunch of people I posted it online and the AV club did a story about it. And then we went viral. So then I spent the first week of my marriage, like media training my husband and like to go on Zoom and, and talk with you know, CNN's wire service and a number of different, you know, local news stations. And, and we were just everywhere. And it was, it was really funny, you know. But the fact is, know that Jeff Goldblum is as awesome as you hope he is, is a very wonderful Oh, he's so, he's, he's so funny. And what a chaotic person to meet on your wedding day. And, and people still ask about it, too. It's just like the thing that I always think of. I mean, I, there were so many wonderful things it was the happiest day of my life for other reasons, but I do think it's just so funny to, to get to reminisce about that story and, and just how it made me feel going into that moment in my life. Absolutely. Sabrina Carton, thank you so much for being on Girls That Create today. Thank you so much, Erin, for having me. And girls, keep on creating. To all of you tuning in, thank you for joining us on the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. In honor of the Dolly Parton fandom, I'm going to close out with one of my favorite Dolly quotes. The way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. Here's our closing theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Aaron Prather Stafford. She is sure. She is sure. She is sure.